Hey everybody, welcome to episode 202 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I will be joined a little bit later by guest Jason Brooks as we talk about, I think, a fascinating topic, which is stress today. Stress often gets a bad rap in our lives as we often associate it with negative things, but the truth is stress is necessary in order to grow and training if paired appropriately with rest, and it can even be a source of resilience in our daily life if we're talking about life stress. And so today we want to kind of pull away the negative connotations with stress and look at stress more objectively. We'll introduce a couple of stress concepts today in what will become a two-part discussion with Jason on the topic of stress. So we'll get to that in just a second. A couple of things before we jump in. First of all, wanted to just make you aware of a couple of quick rogue announcements, and then we're going to talk about the London Marathon, which is coming up this Sunday, October 4th. But quick rogue announcements. First of all, as I mentioned on my episode last week, for those that want to take advantage of the offer that I mentioned on my episode last week, for the vitamin supplement company Care Of. You can go to takecareof.com. That's T-A-K-E, careof.com, and use the code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. That's ROGUE, R-O-G-U-E, all lowercase, ROGUE50. If you want to take advantage of that, half off is quite a deal. Highly recommend the site. Secondly, for those that might be interested in running Rogue Podcast Swag, We have now available for pre-order through October 4th, which is Sunday, the opportunity to buy some Running Rogue podcast shirts. It's a cotton poly blend, only $20. If you want to go check that out, then you can go to our website, roguerunning.com, click on the shop button in the menu at the top, and then go to Rogue Gear, where you can pre-order those Running Rogue podcast shirts. So check that out if you're interested. And now let's talk about London. The London Marathon is the only elite marathon, at least as of now, happening this fall. And so we couldn't be more excited about that. We've got some massive matchups in the works on both the men's and women's side. But before I get to the races and breaking those down, I want to give you some details on the race itself. Set the table a little bit. First of all, these races are going to be happening again Sunday, October 4th. Fourth, they're going to be happening on a closed course, a 2.15k loop around St. James Park in London, right adjacent to Buckingham Palace. And so, presumably, the Queen will be somehow waving over the palace wall or somehow present at the event. But you're going to be doing the 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 elites. It's elite only race. They'll be doing 19 two and a 2.15k loops, 19 2. 1.5k loops basically is a rectangular style loop. You've got four turns essentially in the loop every 2k. For those Americans in the group, that's going to be about one and a quarter miles for each of these loops. Just right turns only. They're going to be going a clockwise direction around St. James Park, which will make for a flat and fast, but perhaps boring loop. No spectators are allowed, so they'll be doing it just the athletes with their pacers and I presume some coaches and and uh, other volunteers and officials can be on the course 
but no spectators. The races will go in what I think is a cool fashion. The women's race, the men's race are going to happen entirely separately. So you can watch them independently instead of having to watch them cut back and forth so they can properly showcase each race individually. In London time, the women's race will be going at 7.15 a.m., the men's race 10.15 a.m., and the wheelchair race at 1.10 p.m. That translates to 2.15 a.m. Eastern time for the Americans, 1.15 Austin time, 4.15 a.m. Austin time for the men's race, or 5.15 Eastern, and 7.15 a.m. Austin time, 8.15 Eastern for the wheelchair. So if you want to watch this, you're going to have to get up early or perhaps in the middle of the night for some or just stay awake and 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 power on through. So those are the quick logistical details. In terms of weather, it looks like for the most part, the temperatures are going to be pretty good. The variables, however, will be a slight chance of rain, 50 to 60% chance of light rain, and then potentially some winds picking up in the afternoon. 13 mile an hour winds in the middle of the day, which should mostly affect the men's race. It looks like it's going to be pretty calm, five to eight mile an hour winds for the women's race. So while that weather is solid, maybe it's not quite perfect if it's a little bit wet and it's definitely going to be a little bit humid and muggy in the morning. So maybe very slightly on the warm and humid side, very slightly. Uh, versus perfect conditions, which might start in the upper 40s and be a little bit more dry. So good conditions, if not perfect conditions. So that's that. You've got about 25 to 30 elites on each side. These elites are going to be staying in a hotel outside of London that they rented, or at least that they've reserved exclusively for the athletes and the race staff. And athletes have to test Four days before they fly to London, and I believe everybody's already on their way. And then they have to test once they get to the hotel, and they will be quarantined in the hotel until they get back a, a negative test. And then there'll be subsequent test and leading, testing leading up to the race. Apparently, even within the bubble, the athlete bubble, athletes are required to wear masks, practice social distancing, and do all of the normal things to keep yourself safe in that environment, even the bubble environment. So kudos to London for pulling off all of these logistics. Logistics is going to make for fascinating racing as we have pretty stacked fields on both sides. I'm going to quickly give you a breakdown of each of these races with my predictions, and then we'll go on to talk to Jason on the main topic. On the men's side, you've got the base, basically the showcase is Kipchoge versus Bekele in the men's race going head-to-head. That is the matchup that they're espousing. You've got, of course, Kipchoge, who has only once lost a marathon, and that happened back in 2013, seven years ago in Berlin. Only once has he lost. And then, of course, he holds the world record in 201.39, and then is the only one, as we know, to break two hours in the marathon on a contrived course with contrived, not record-eligible circumstances. And then you've got Kinesia Bekele, who is arguably the greatest track runner 
of all time. Hasn't quite put all the pieces together consistently for the marathon, but did win Berlin last fall while Bekele was breaking two. He did win. Sorry, why Kipchoge was breaking two. Bekele did win Berlin, and he ran just two seconds behind Kipchoge's world record in 201.41. So presumably, the matchup that everyone's excited about is these two head-to-head. Can we get a match race that will be fascinating? Now, of course, while Kipchoge has been consistent in the marathon and has only lost once, Bekele has been relatively inconsistent and has at times been called out by his own agent for being inconsistent in his training and preparation for these races. And so what will we get from Bekele is the big question because I would bet a lot of money that Kipchoge will show up ready to go. We'll break down that matchup in a second. There's four other racers on the men's side that are worth mentioning, all that have run 204 or faster, and so potentially with the right conditions, might potentially be in the mix for a podium spot or to challenge one of those two athletes, even for the win. You've got Mozamet Garamu, who finished second in London last year in 2019. He ran 202.55 in that race. So he's a 202 marathoner, one of very few in the world now. And then you've got Mule Wazahun, who's run 203.16. He was third in London last year behind Kipchoge and Garamu. You've got Cisse Lemma, who's run 203.36 to finish third in Berlin behind Bekele last year. And then you have another athlete who doesn't quite have the PR. He's raced in the 204s in Dubai, Shura Katata, who has a second place finish in New York a couple of years back to his name and is someone who's always, always mixing it up at the front of these races. And so Garamu, Wazahun, Katata, and Lemma are the main contenders on the men's side outside of Kipchoge and Bekele. So... And then, incidentally, by the way, Mo Farah will be pacing one of the pacers on the men's side, which is kind of interesting. But the big matchup, Kachogi versus Bekele, what will happen there? Unfortunately, I think from my vantage point, this is pretty predictable. Others may disagree. Kipchoge, first of all, has a major advantage against Bekele. In the marathon, not only has he been the guy that no one can beat in general... He's also bettered Bekele four times in their head-to-head matchups in the marathon. The last one came in Berlin in 2018 when Bekele actually dropped out of that race that Kipchoge went on to win. So, And by the way, that day had fairly similar conditions to what we might see in London. 50s temperatures with potential light rain. That's what was also present in that 2018 Berlin race. So my prediction is that Kipchoge will win and will not really be challenged by Bekele. I think it's been rare that Bekele has showed up at a, at a marathon in the last three or four years, really ready to go and on point. Last year's 2019 Berlin race was an exception, and I think it will stay an exception my prediction is that Bekele doesn't show up ready to race. He'll probably hang in there for a bit, but might drop back as soon as 
the half marathon point or earlier. I think Kipchoge will be ready to roll and will easily win this race without really being challenged. I think he's a cut above. We know it from his sub two effort. This is also, by the way, the first time in an official race, I believe, that he'll be wearing the Alpha Fly, which is the Nike shoe that got him the sub two race last fall. And so this is his opportunity to put that race into practice and potentially challenge his own world record. Kipchoge is the guy who shows up ready to race. And to this point, Bekele doesn't have the consistency in my mind to challenge him. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we get a good match race going late into this race, but I doubt it. I unfortunately doubt it. I think most likely Kipchoge will be unchallenged late in this race. That's my prediction. Others can predict otherwise. Of the others in the race, I like Garamu, Wazahun, and Katata because of how they've performed in this race and because of their PRs and also because Katata just seems like one of those guys who's a gamer who always kind of puts himself in the mix. We've seen that in other races. Which ones will be on the podium? It's hard to say. I think it's mostly a coin flip because you really don't have a lot of data from this year on these guys. Certainly they all have the resumes to potentially hang with Kipchoge and Bekele for a long period of time, but we just don't know what they're going to bring to the race. So honestly, your guess is as good as mine, but the way it works in marathons is that oftentimes, you know, that history in the race, that ability to run fast and to show that you're a, a gamer who can race tends to bubble forward in, in events like this. So I'm going to go with just, again, sort of picking names out of a hat, but essentially relying on past performance to be my guide. I'm going to go with Garamu for second. He has the third fastest PR in this field behind Bekele. And I'm going to go with Katata for third because I like the fact that he's a gamer who's done well in, in race affairs. And so if this thing gets down to it at the end with the Pacers having fallen away, I think he's the one who can duke it out with others perhaps for that third place spot. So I'm going to go Kipchoge, Garamu, Katata. And honestly, it would be surprising to me if Bekele finishes this race. Again, I hope I'm wrong, but that's my prediction for Bekele. I'm predicting a DNF and that's that. So Kipchoge for the win, Garamu and Katata rounding out my top three. Those are my predictions for the men's race in London. Before we talk about the women's race, we also have to mention that American Jared Ward is in this field. Canadian Cam Levins is in this field. For those North American fans who listen to this podcast, Jared Ward, I saw an interview with him. He said that he basically figured out he was doing this race seven or eight weeks ago and did a really short seven to eight week marathon build. And he says, if it works, then I will from now on do seven to eight week marathon builds. He did mention that he'd been training well over the summer before he turned his focus to London and was optimistic about his chances, but he kind of laughed when he was talking about the pace groups that they would have out there, which are all much faster than what he's been able to run. So it'll be interesting to see how he treats this one. 
I'm assuming that Jared Ward, Cam Levins, and probably some of the British athletes will have a pace group that will fall probably somewhere in the 208 to 209 range, I would guess. Hopefully those guys can work together, stick together, and maybe, just maybe, Jared Ward can squeeze a PR out of this super fast course. So we'll be watching that as well. But those guys should finish well off the lead. Now, let's talk about the women's race. An interesting field, I think, in that you have three women in particular that have the pedigrees to potentially win this race. You've got Bridget Cosguy, the world record holder who ran 214 in Chicago last year to absolutely decimate the world record as well as decimate the field on that day. You have Ruth Chepengedich, who's run 217. She's also the world champion from Doha in 2019. And then you have Vivian Chiriot, who won London in 2018, and she's run 218 and has that fearless kind of racing style that has served her well in majors previously. I believe she was also second in the 2019 London race. So those are your top athletes, and I think your winner will probably come from that list. And then you've got a handful of other Ethiopian athletes to watch that also have low 220 to sub 220 marathon PRs. You've got Azamira, you've got Bakari and Megaruti that could also potentially be in that lead pack battling it out for the podium. But really, I think your leader, your winner, will likely come from that trio of Kozgai, Chepengedich, and Churyat. So, who will win? This one, I think, seems to be fairly clear-cut in a sense that you've got a very, very clear PR advantage for Bridget Kozgai. She's run 214. It is believed that she ran that in the next percents and not the alpha fly in Chicago. And theoretically the alpha fly is a faster shoe. So now she'll have the alpha fly working for her, which means that she'll have a subtle additional advantage from her footwear. And given that she has a three minute PR edge, I think it's hard to pick against her. She also recently ran the one mile time trial on the track where she broke the world one mile record on the track to finish only behind Sifan Hassan, who also broke the record that day. So now you have Kaskai, who is not only the marathon world record holder, but now the second fastest woman to ever cover the one-hour race on the track, which tells you that she's also pretty fit. So to me, this is actually in many ways similar to the men's race in that you have one athlete with a clear PR difference who has the preparation needed who is an absolutely amazing racer and seems to be a cut above the rest. So I'm going to go with Bridget Koskai for the win. I think it's going to take perhaps a mistake from her in order for somebody else to win. And I think it'll be interesting to see what pace they set and who goes with that pace. I'm assuming Kazgai is going to be going for her own world record. And so maybe she's more aggressive than others. In which case, perhaps one of those other two athletes, Shep and Gedich or Chiriot, if they choose a more conservative path, could potentially catch Kazgai late or Kazgai could bury herself perhaps and not end up finishing. 
I think that's the most likely scenario for someone to beat Kazgai is if she just takes this race out too aggressively and ends up imploding as a result. But she's going to have pacers, so I don't see that happening. I'm going with Kazgai for the win. I like Churyat for second because of her history and pedigree in London and because she just has more experience than Chepin Gedich, especially in a race like this one. And yes, Chepin Gedich won the world champs, but that was a very different scenario on a really hot day in Doha. And she's also raced in Dubai, which doesn't quite have the same pedigree of a field. So I'm predicting Churyat for second. And then I would bet that we're going to see a surprise for third. I'm assuming that one of these top three women ends up having a bad day as the marathon eventually catch up, catches up with someone. And so I'm going to guess that that's Chepin Gedich just simply because she lacks the same experience that Chariot and Kazga have. And so I'm going to pick Azamira as as that wild card athlete who has a solid PR who could perhaps hang in there and snag third place. So I'm going Kazgai, Churyat, Azamira for my three, but could easily see Chepin Gedich get in there as well if she's able to hold things together. In the field, outside of those top athletes, top contenders, you've got a trio of Americans, actually, Sarah Hall, Molly Seidel, and Lindsay Flanagan all racing which I would assume they're all going to be going for PRs. It's going to be really interesting to see particularly how Molly Seidel does because she's only raced one marathon. She made the team in the Olympic trials, finishing second in Atlanta, but on a course that was very, very different and on a course that didn't have pacers on it. And so to run this flat, fast course with pacers is going to be a very different marathon experience. In fact, a completely polar opposite experience than what she has had previously. And this will be a real test for her. We know that Sarah Hall will be going for a big PR. The question is what? I would assume potentially that she'll try to do something really big, potentially go under 220 on a race course like this that sets itself up as being flat and fast Sarah Hall is known as an aggressive racer. Her coach, Ryan, was aggressive himself and is aggressive as a coach. So I would bet that she's going to try to do something big here, potentially go sub 220. And so we shall see if that's possible. Sarah's been training in Crested Butte, so she's been at high altitude. And that should serve her well as she goes to London. But I suspect big fireworks for Sarah and either she pulls it off and has an absolutely historic day or potentially blows up a little bit and, and finishes more slowly. So those would be the two scenarios. I think it's probably going to be a binary type scenario for a Sarah Hall. Molly Seidel, I hope she's a little bit more conservative, although that could potentially put her in a situation where she's running solo, a solo time trial out there. So it'll be interesting to see what she can do because this will certainly be a field more like what she's going to face in the Tokyo Olympics next year, but it'll be good experience no matter what happens for her. I hope she can just take maybe a small step forward and get a nice little PR along with Lindsay Flanagan. So those are your fields. Men and women should be fireworks all morning or all early morning, depending on where you're going to be watching from. Tune in 
Sunday, October 4th, early, early for those that are here in the U.S. Should be exciting. We'll see how I do with my picks. So with that, we'll wrap the intro and then move to talk about stress on my main topic, bringing Jason Brooks, Coach Jason Brooks on. He is my co-coach with the base training group that we do that's podcast based. As a part of that, we talk about lifestyle topics in addition to talking about the running and strength training that we have as a part of that base training program. And one of the things that he's done a good job of educating me on is stress. And so as I teed up in the intro, we're going to be talking about stress today and in particular two stress concepts, total stress load as well as stress inventory. So with that as an intro, let's jump in to that conversation with Jason. So Jason, let's tee up this total stress load concept for the group. Okay. So this is a central theory or, or paradigm by which we like to operate. And um, basically what we're looking at at the highest level is stress comes into our lives in three primary areas, physiological stress, things like running, strength training, where, we're, where we have like an exogenous physical stress. And then we have psychological stress and we have emotional stress. And these are all interrelated. So our body bears a lot of the physical uh, symptoms of emotional or psychological stress and also doing physical work can create neurological stress in the body. And so we like to think about how much stress we're putting on ourselves in these three categories. And then we can delve into these independent categories and look at tactics for mitigating the stress load in each one of those categories. And so the body, the human body is always looking for homeostasis or this idea of allostasis. And so whenever we deviate from homeostasis, our body responds, tries to adapt to to whatever it is, usually a stress of some kind, that is pushing us out of homeostasis in order to return. And when we do things like exercise all the time or work in a high-stress environment or live under regular emotional duress, we accumulate a chronic stress load. And we have to be cognizant of that and do whatever we can to mitigate it. And so the way I like to think about this is that we're always trying to understand how we're putting stress on our body, what that load might look like, and then think about tactics and a broader strategy about how we help our body stay closer to homeostasis. And um, so running is an easy one for us to think about. We, We train a lot and in part, we want the stress of training so that our body can adapt, so that it can better support that. Um, but we also want to do everything we can to support our body's um, management of that stress load we're putting on it. And so we do things like practice recovery, rehydrate, um, eat well, get massages, do trigger point therapy, stretch, take rest days, 
and that sort of thing. And we start small and we build so that we can adapt as we continue to put higher and higher stress loads on our body. And so this is the, the kind of core concept. How do we support homeostasis in our body and how do we understand all of the stress that we're putting on our body? And so we want to look at the purpose of a stress inventory is to write down all the things that cause stress for us in these categories, emotional stress, psychological stress, and physiological or physical stress. And, and so that can be as simple as making a mental note of these things or actually writing it out in a journal. Uh, you could create your own little format where you kind of outline the things that you're doing, or you can have journals or kind of dialogues for each of these categories, like a running journal, um, or you could use a Strava log or something like that. And um, so, you know, you, you might watch how much running you're doing over time, how much strength training you're doing over time, and you can take note over time of the accumulation of stress from that. And uh, as you write down things that are happening in your daily life that might cause emotional or psychological stress, you can, if you're intentional, intentional about documenting these things, then you become aware of them. And as you become aware of them, you can start to actually do things about them. So the idea of the stress inventory really is to make sure we're aware of all the ways in which we're putting stress on our body so that we can start to do something about it. And I'll stop there, Chris, and see what you have to add. Yes. And so all good stuff there. I think for me, the framing around this conversation is important. And one of the framing elements that I've learned to accept that has been a helpful tool for me when it comes to framing the discussion around stress is this idea that uh, this idea of taking the judgment out of the conversation around stress. Previous to this thought process around total stress load and stress inventory, previous to that, that I would typically assign by default training, as I think our society has taught us, I would assign bad, bad, bad connotation, bad ideas, bad words to stress. And in some cases, that's completely wrong, right? In a sense that, you know, there's good, there's, you know, I just did it. There's, there's stress that is productive in a sense that we're, when we're training, we're putting our body under stress, whether it be strength stress or running related stress, aerobic stress, we're putting our body under stress. And then by matching that with the appropriate amount of rest, we're then coming back stronger. And so, and I think typically, you know, that kind of concept we get intellectually, but we didn't have also this category of, of stress that we judge or that we deem as bad stress, which might be stress associated with emotional challenges in your life, with with structural challenges in your life, especially with family, with busyness, with time, all of these other things where we assign judgment and sometimes shame and blame to those categories of stress that isn't 
productive. And yes, some of that stress may not be productive for you, but to to give it a, a, a bad name or to throw it in this category, the, this negative category, for me would result in a bit of a shame spiral of sorts where I would kind of beat myself up over having stress in some of these other areas because I would in my head think, well, I'm not supposed to have that stress or, you know, I should have balance. And so therefore, you know, this stress is negative is a bad thing. It's something I should blame myself for whatever it may be. And by, by taking away the judgment from stress and just trying to objectively identify it and look at it as something that is and and then make a decision about is that something that's productive for me or is that something that's unproductive for me you know and and those things that are unproductive for me or that I choose to try to manage then I can approach objectively and try to work through but but taking that judgment out of it completely reframes the whole conversation because I feel like part of the challenge with this concept of stress is that we end up putting a lot of these stressors into negative, you know, a negative framing or a, a blame framing where we blame ourselves or we beat ourselves up, which then adds even more stress to the top of the equation. So, so taking that away, taking away the judgment from stress and just looking at it objectively has been a really helpful tool for me. And a part of being able to do that is this stress management inventory, which we'll talk about in just a second. So that's sort of point one. Point two is, I guess, related to what I just said, or at least embedded within what, within what I just said, which is this idea that stress is a good thing, in a, in a sense. Just like pain is a good thing. You know, we like to sometimes avoid or numb those things. But if instead we just tune in, listen, channel, use in a productive way, then almost any form of stress can be channel funneled, used in a productive way if we allow it to be. You know, again, training stress, I think we intuitively know that that can be a productive thing because you lift weight, you tear down the muscle that adds stress to the equation. You rest from that, you come back a stronger muscle. Same thing with training and running. You give yourself aerobic stimulus, that's stress. You come off of that with easy running and rest, active recovery that allows you to then run faster aerobically on the other side. That I think we understand. But life stress or emotional stress, again, also can be very productive. It's a sign of something that can point you in a direction that can be productive. So, you know, that might meet, that could be, just as an example, it could be relationship tension that might manifest. And in whatever relationship that might be, whether it be with your spouse, your kids, your friends, relationship tension is a sign that either there's, you know, productive work already happening in that relationship where you have some sort of healthy tension there that's helping you both become better, stronger together. Or maybe it's a sign that you you need to move to a more productive space that can be a signal to turn that 
stress into something that can be channeled and funneled for productive gain. And I think almost any category of stress you can take and if you just flip it on its head and instead of giving a judgment, you can actually turn it into a positive thing, just like pain in the body. Pain in the body is a sign that something is wrong. And you ha- if you listen, if you tune into that pain, if you let it be a guide to you, then it can show you the way. It can show you what your body needs in order to move beyond that pain and to to move to a healthier, stronger space. So, so those are the, the two elements I wanted to add to this, which is that when we're talking about total stress load, we're not talking about it in the context of judgment. We're not talking about it in the context of a negative thing, but, but rather an objective way of looking at the stressors in your life and then deciding yourself, you getting to choose which ones you want to, to use for your benefit or maybe channel for your benefit and which ones you want to say, no, that's not helpful. That's not productive for me. So I want to, I want to move on from that stressor. And that's all we're talking about. Those are two excellent points. Thank you for bringing that up. I got on a bit of, I got on a bit of a soapbox, but this is something I'm really passionate about. And honestly, I owe you significantly for showing me the light with some of these stress tools. So huge thank you to you for that is there anything else we should cover on total stress load before we dig into stress inventory i think uh we've hit the important parts the most important parts anyway so then let's talk about the stress inventory what do what do we want people to do there we want you all to well actually before we say what do we want let's say why why do we want them to do this Yes. And I think this is a no-brainer for everybody to do because it's just a simple exercise that you could you could take not much time thinking through, but we'll get to the, the mechanics of that in a second. But why? What why is this important? For awareness. That's really it. To to be aware of what in your life is causing stress and to what degree um that stress might be affecting you. I mean, just so knowing that means you can do something about it. So awareness is the first step. So writing it all down, just doing a little inventory of it uh, will get you there. And then it can eventually become a practice. And, you know, this is something that we do regularly, right? So that we can constantly check in with ourselves and make sure we're aware of everything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just simply that. Just recognizing, identifying those stress those those sources of stress load in your life so that you can then channel those in productive ways or as I said decide no, that's not a stressor I want in my life, so I'm going to move on from that stressor. So then, let's get to mechanics. What do we want people to do? If you have a journal, um or something that you use as a journal or some kind of practice like that, this, this would be a good space to use it in. Uh, but essentially, write down, uh, you can categorize it if you like, or you can just write stream of consciousness, uh, open form, whatever you like, pen and paper, pencil and paper, uh, Evernote or whatever you use online. and. Um, Focus on uh, documenting 
the physical, emotional, psychological stress they have in your life. So, for example, uh, I'm I am <clears throat> currently exercising at moderate, low to moderate intensity uh, for six hours a week, and I have I'm dealing with some emotional and psychological stress related to homeschooling my children while also working 50 hours a week and a high stress job and and then maybe there is some trouble in your family a family member or a friend passed away from COVID-19 or you know parent has Alzheimer's and you're kind of trying to deal with that and then um that's really it like Chris said no judgment assigned to any of it uh, no negative or positive connotations and um, no no stigmatization of it it's all totally fine look at the connections between some of the things that you may be experiencing in life and the stress that you're feeling that can be helpful and we will eventually get into a discussion about what next we do. And what are, yeah. what are your thoughts there, Chris? Yeah, it's good. I, I think the main thing is, and, and, I, and I do think thinking about it in the categories you mentioned is helpful. But I also want to make sure that people understand we're not necessarily asking you to create a, a detailed list in all of those categories. The categorizations are just there to help you identify and think through what might be weighing on you in some way. And so it's it's more of an outline, so to speak, of of thought right. process that can allow you to think through, okay, is where you know, where is my emotional stress coming from? Let me think about that for a second. You may not have anything in that category, but you may have a long list. But and so we're not necessarily asking you to create a complex list for all of these categories. It's just a, a trigger in your mind to give you areas to think about. Ultimately, what we really want you to do is to, th- to isolate the two or three areas of stress in your life that you want to change or channel in a different way, either by funneling it into something productive or by potentially you know, moving away from that stress. And so we'll get to how to deal with it later, but this is all about the opportunity to just identify objectively those areas of stress in your life that you want to manage in some way and writing those down and then sitting with that a little bit so that you feel good that you have prioritized those areas that you really want to affect. So I can tell you for me, and this has been an ever evolving inventory really over the last six months because of the pandemic, whereas typically my stressors were were pretty static and I, you know, had an opportunity to kind of work on those things more consistently. I feel like mine have evolved every month, it seems like, during the last six months, as I'm sure that's true for many. Right now, and you already mentioned it, my one of my number one stressors is virtual schooling and managing that in a productive way for me as well as for my kids, for my wife. So, you know, that's something that would be at the top of my list right now. Dealing with injury, I'm dealing with a heel injury that I'm managing, and that's bringing me a lot of stress that manifests really across all three of those buckets. I'm trying to channel that in a productive way towards 
being a healthier runner on the other side, but at times that slips into unhealthy, less productive behavior. So that's something that's at the top of my list right now. And then I would say, you know, for me, there's work stress too, of just managing a business through a really complex time with all of the ever-changing sort of elements out there due to the pandemic. And that's, you know, created a little extra stress on me as an individual that I'm trying to funnel in a productive way. So if I were to to kind of detail my top three areas, those would be the things. And what I want you to do is not just write down the categories of things. You know, for me, again, to summarize, it'd be, you know, homeschool virtual learning, a heel injury, and and business-related stress due to the pandemic. It's not just to write down those high-level categories, but drill into it a little bit. Try to get as specific as you can under each of those categories. What specifically is causing you stress or contributing to your stress in those areas? And to me, perhaps more importantly, how does it make you feel? What are the emotions that are coming with that stress? Again, we're not we're not placing judgment. We're not even trying to fix anything as a part of this exercise. All we're doing is identifying objectively the sources of stress, the details of what's causing it, and what what it's doing to you. How does it make you feel? Just writing it down, calling it by name, and just letting it sit. As Jason said, we'll get to we'll get to changing, we'll get to reallocating, we'll get to managing that stress. But for now, this is really all about identifying it. I love it. You know, as a for like a out of the box example, one of the major stressors that I'm always coping with, uh, or at least that has been at the forefront of my efforts over the past two years or so is it's like personality and character related um so i've always struggled in my life with anger problems and it ebbs and flows over time and over the last couple of years it's been more of a challenge for me and manifests in in ways that in interpersonal relationships that i don't really like and so there are these elements of myself that I'm always trying to work on that create a lot of stress for me. And, and it manifests in like, you know, undermining the health of relationships uh, and um, just causing me like my own introspective strain. And so think not just about your external environment, but also, you know, maybe there are some things we all have that we want to work on and those at times can be a big point of stress for us. Yep. Yes. Hear that for sure. And appreciate you sharing on your side. So, so that, I mean, that's it (laughs) in a sense, but simple activity, simple exercise you know, spend 20 minutes, spend 30 minutes, not more than that, thinking through it. Maybe you could do it on one of your runs during this week is just to to meditate and reflect on this topic and then come back and write some things down. We will eventually take this inventory and put it to work for us. But for now, this is again, just about identifying those sources of stress in your life that you'd like to manage 
in some way and and then we'll come back to those later pretty simple but not easy in terms of an exercise this requires this definitely requires some introspection and being unafraid to jump into some of those things you might be wrestling with as a human right now so yeah yeah and give yourself a you know a couple of weeks to kind of iterate on this you know you might not like the it's like the writing process Uh, i use the i use the writing process analogy a lot but first pass is kind of like your rough draft on it and then you can reflect on whether or not there are some things actually that might crowd out what's at the top of your list and and so don't be afraid to take some time to really think through this and and revisit it yep so that's it for this conversation with jason again just teeing up that concept of total stress load And then stress inventory, we're going to come back to a conversation later in a future episode with Jason on what to do with that list, that stress inventory list, and how to then move to action on those things that you'd like to manage or perhaps eliminate in your world. So we'll get to that in a later episode. Stay tuned for that. Otherwise, and as always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at roguerunning.com. Until next time, we'll talk to you then.